0: Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Cameron and I will be talking about what the concert hall can teach you about prayer, how Grace incorporates the Psalms into every worship service and why it's so important in theology to cultivate a sense of mystery without using mystery as a veil to obscure what the Bible actually teaches. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to the commentary at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can always find us online at graceforsuefalls.org. Thanks for listening. Let's start with a funny story. Whether it's a ha-ha funny story or just a strange funny story, I'll leave it up to you to decide. This takes place at the symphony. It was the first concert that I'd gone to since concerts had resumed. So, So picture a concert hall where the listeners are spread out, with lots of empty seats surrounding each person for social distancing, where everyone is wearing a mask, including the symphony itself, including the conductor, Delta David Geyer. The music that night was a combination of traditional favorites and a world premiere. During the intermission, I went outside and found that unlike concerts of the past, there really wasn't a huge crowd of people milling about that made it easy for me to find some people I knew. Nate and Holly, were members of Grace, were at the concert as well. And so we, with our masks muffling our conversation, We're chatting, and one of the topics that came up was our sermon series on Zechariah. A stranger walked up to us, also behind a mask, and said, Excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt, but are you talking about Zechariah? I thought at first maybe I had misheard, but but I hadn't. He asked whether or not we were talking about the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, and when we confirmed that we were, he grew excited and he said, been to a lot of churches and I've never heard anyone talk about Zechariah, which is strange because the prophet Zechariah is so important to understanding what happens in the New Testament, is cited so often. And so, of course, we assured him that at grace we are talking about Zechariah and told him where to find us. And I went back into the concert hall feeling really surprised As a pastor, I've occasionally had these run-ins in public where people overhear a conversation and they want to know more, which is always wonderful. But but honestly, no one has ever jumped in on a conversation about Old Testament prophecy and asked to hear more. But our new acquaintance was absolutely right. If you open any commentary on Zechariah, one of the first observations that you'll find is that despite the importance of this book, It is very rarely referenced. It's one of those books that, unlike Isaiah, unlike Jeremiah, we don't often refer to, which is a little bit strange once you realize what the prophet Zechariah is all about. Our conversation on the commentary is going to be dwelling on Zechariah for weeks to come as our sermon series unfolds. So if you want to know more about Zechariah, in addition to listening to the sermons on our sermon podcast, do subscribe to the commentary to stay up to date. The reason I bring up the concert hall is that I think there is a lesson that the concert hall can teach us about prayer. Prayer is one of those things that many Christians continue to struggle with. They worry that they don't pray the right way or that they don't pray often enough. And so it's not uncommon to hear people ask for help, for instruction, for additional training and how to pray. Prayer was a problem in the Gospels as well. If you read the Gospel accounts, you'll find that one of the biggest obstacles to prayer is probably sleep. At Gethsemane, the disciples themselves had a hard time keeping watch with Jesus for just an hour. They kept falling asleep. Falling asleep is often a symptom of something you can relate to, which is boredom a lack of engagement. One of the greatest difficulties with the life of prayer is just paying attention. That's the reason why when people ask me what they can do to improve their life of prayer, one of the suggestions that I often make is a little bit out of left field. I recommend that they go to a symphony concert. The point of a symphony concert is to listen, to listen for an hour, to listen for two hours. The first time you do it, don't be surprised if you go a little crazy, if you can't stop fidgeting, if you're constantly trying to figure out what you're supposed to be doing with yourself during all this time, because frankly, we're just not accustomed to listening. There are not many activities in our lives that require us to give sustained focus, to pay attention over a long period of time, to be hyper aware, or to put it bluntly, just to listen. Prayer is one of those activities, but it's not the only one. And sometimes by immersing yourself in a similar kind of experience, you can develop a capacity paying attention, that will pay off when it comes to prayer. It may take a few concerts, but eventually you will start hearing things that you didn't hear at first. You'll settle down. You'll find that you're able to listen in ways that you weren't before you disciplined yourself. Of course, there is more to prayer than just listening, but learning to listen is a good start. Now, sticking with the theme of music, let's talk a little bit about the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, the Psalter, is the songbook of the Bible. The Psalms were given to us by God to sing, to use in our worship. And at Grace, we use the Psalms in our worship in a particular way that's often striking to newcomers. So Cameron and I would like to take a few moments and and talk about this. First, I'd like to play you a psalm refrain from Psalm 4. This is going to be verse 8, the final verse set to music by Bethany Van Ralty. So listen to this. Sing every Sunday one of the Psalms, and we do it singing the text of the Psalm itself. And the technique that we use is we take one verse or one phrase from the Psalm and we set that to music and we sing that as a refrain. And then between the refrains, we read the text of the entire Psalm or of a portion of the Psalm. And it's a way for us to incorporate the Psalms into our worship. Now, Cameron, you've also written some psalms as well for worship at grace.
1: Tell me a little bit, what's that process like? You know, I think it usually starts just reading. Um, You know, I try to read at least one, two psalms a day in in my morning Bible reading, and I have, you know, I I try not to think just in terms of, well, what might be a a cool verse, but uh, um, sometimes I can't help it. Reading along and, and trying to maybe pick out a line that that captures the heart of a psalm, um, a line that is something that I need to remind myself and maybe others m- need to be reminded of as well in, in worship. So it, it usually starts with a, a, a verse, something, some core truth. And from there will come the melody, and I'll work on the melody. But it, it, I think it always is theologically driven, at least for me. Uh, it needs to be something that that we want to sing, we need to sing, and that's exactly what the Psalms are for.
0: I think one of the things that works really well, and it works really well in Psalm 4, is when the refrain is like a verse that you can cling to and really internalize. And so Bethany chose verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. By taking that out and giving it emphasis by setting it to music and emphasis through repetition, that verse becomes watchwords for people. And the psalms that we've treated this way become our psalms. You know, and these lines just repeat in your mind and come to you at moments when you need them. You know, in the reformed tradition there is a a, a camp within the Reformed world uh, where people practice what they call exclusive psalmody. They only sing the psalms in worship. And some of them only sing the psalms in like four-part harmony. They don't even use instruments. And I know a lot of people would hear that and think, wow, that that really leaves out so much uh, of the musical inheritance that we have. But but honestly, the psalms are surprisingly rich, and the church in general—we we don't practice exclusive psalmody, as a friend of mine put it. Uh, we typically practice excluded psalmody, you know, so that the songbook that God gave us is kind of omitted from our our worship, and and we think of it as basically prose. And so, this has been a way for us to introduce psalmody into our worship without uh, resorting to some of the older methods like the metrical psalter, which rephrases the verses into meter. What I like about this, like uh, plain chant, is that it allows us to use the actual text of scripture in our worship and not kind of a, a version of it that we've changed ourselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's great, and and I have found too that it's not only that I I think to myself, well, I, I need you know I need some promise, I need to hear some some good um, word from the Lord, but it's that while I'm reading the Psalms in my own devotional time, and I'll I'll come across a Psalm that we have put to music, and instantly the melody comes to my mind, and you know it's good to try to memorize Scripture and memorize entire psalms, but sometimes all we can cling to is that one verse, and, but I think the music helps it stick with you all day long, really. So, Pastor Mark, you began your sermon on Sunday talking about measurements and Zechariah, What was the quote? Um, Man is the measure of all things. Who said that first? (laughs) Protagoras. Protagoras, okay. Uh, I'll have to catch up on my Greek philosophy later. So, starting with man as the measure of all things, and then at at the end, kind of came full circle, and you mentioned in light of this, you know, this angelic figure in Zechariah signifying Christ, that Christ is the measure of all things. Christ being. The embodiment of the grace of God is the measure of all things. And I was just curious if you could elaborate a little bit on, on what you meant by that. What does that mean that Christ is the measure of all things?
0: As I said, there's a sense in which what Protagoras says makes sense, you know, that we are subjective knowers. And as a result, we we interpret everything kind of through the lens of experience and and that sort of thing. But, but we as human beings... We can't quite call ourselves representative human beings because we're also not very good at being human because of the fall. And so when Christ comes and is incarnate, we have the divine and the human in one person, but but not you know, compromised, mixed or anything like that. We confess he's fully God and fully man, so if you're looking for a way To be able to say man is the measure of all things, it just depends on what man you're thinking of. If we're thinking of Jesus, then certainly the measure of what it means to be fully human is embodied in Christ. And the measure of what it means to be fully divine is there in Christ as well. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. So, in that sense as well, we can find the measure. Of all things in Him, and I think that suggests to us uh, the largeness of creation and also the largeness of God's plan. Because at a certain point, like I can say, you know, Christ is the measure of all things, and and it may sound as if well that has nailed down the dimensions of reality, but. I don't even begin to comprehend the, the measure of Christ. He's beyond my ability to calculate and comprehend. There's this, this element of mystery involved in knowing Christ that all I can do is be in awe of the vastness of his plan. You know, I, I know what he has revealed about the plan of salvation, but I don't know the fullness of what he
1: will do. Well, this is this is strange. You're a Reformed guy talking about mystery. You're Presbyterian. You're not supposed to talk about mystery. Um, right. What are you doing here?
0: Right, right. <laughs> I mean, it is it is one of the common criticisms of Calvinism, of Reformed theology in general, that, uh, that we've put God in a box, that we've uh, come up with a logical system so that we can banish all the mystery out of Scripture and And certainly when you start talking about election and predestination, people can be very quick to draw the veil of mystery over those things. Um, Scripture doesn't. Scripture addresses those things and doesn't leave them mysterious. We certainly don't comprehend them in their fullness, but they are revealed to us, and what has been revealed, we ought to embrace. But having said that, the Reformed tradition, Reformed theology, is so far from explaining it all, so far from from doing away with all the mystery, that if you're familiar at all with it, it, it's always surprising to hear that. You know, I think of the Belgic Confession, which we used in worship last week in Article 13. It asserts God's sovereignty as the creator of all things, but then it turns right back around And says these words. It says, We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without going beyond those limits. So when it comes to God's word and what he's revealed, we want to know everything that he's given to us, but we also want to preserve the mystery where he has not revealed things to us. And, and that's the reason why we don't, uh, we don't feel too comfortable with uh, a lot of speculation outside of scripture and try to avoid it. it it's difficult sometimes. You, you're always tempted to, to fill the gaps, but at a certain point, you have to remind yourself what I actually know is only what has been revealed in Scripture. I don't want to know less than that. But in humility, I have to not try to go beyond that. And, and that's the way that we preserve that sense of mystery. In fact, one of my favorite Reformed theologians, Herman Wawing, begins his book, The Doctrine of God, with the sentence, mystery is the vital element in dogmatics. The most important thing to mention right up front is mystery and the importance of mystery. And I think if you get a glimpse of God's sovereignty, you get a glimpse of his gracious work in salvation, the one thing you will come away with is the sense that, that it is beyond your comprehension. and is an incredible mystery and that your proper response to it, to quote the Belgian Confession again, is to adore the just judgments of God.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really good. And, and I think, too, that there's, so you mentioned humility. So you, you, the reality is, is that there is some mystery. Um, not all things are revealed to us in Scripture. Um, and so we, we approach Scripture with, with humility always. On the other hand, I think, I think if God has revealed something to us, we we embrace that, and we take it, and we believe it, and, and we accept it for what for what it is, for being true. So there's humility on the one hand, and yet there's confidence in God's revelation on the other hand. And I think we have to hold those two in tension. We talked about tension last week. Maybe here's another tension. So there's humility in what, what we don't know, or even the things we do, frankly, about the mystery that shrouds the unknown. And on the other hand, God has revealed some things. And, and I found that some people are perhaps maybe turned off by the confidence or you know the dogmatism of the Reformed tradition because sometimes they just seem so, so confident or assertive in what they believe. Um, of course, we always want to be he- humble with what we do believe. And yet I think there's something, there's something to really cl- clinging to God's word and to believing what he has sold us, right? Absolutely. I, I think
0: certainly other brands or denominations of Christianity have uh, a reputation for mystery, for cultivating mystery and that sort of thing. And so it may not be what you associate with uh, Reformed Christians. And I'm not going to say that's entirely unjust because I'm one of those people who believes, like if, if your only knowledge of Calvinism and Reformed theology has come from People radicalized on the internet whose knowledge of the reform tradition is, you know, 10 minutes old and an inch deep, but is, is virulent. You know, if, if you've encountered people who have, they haven't abandoned the fundamentalism of their upbringing, they've simply like embraced it and upgraded the weaponry by adopting reformed theology. Um, I get that all of this might seem surprising that, that we would talk about the mysteries and, and the beauties of reformed theology, but, but it really is there. And it's the reason why this biblical theology has been such a recurring source of inspiration and revitalization for the church throughout the ages, whether You know, it's in the form of the Reformation or it's in the form of of the teachings of Augustine, all going back to the Apostle Paul himself. This has always been a way of reminding ourselves of the vast and incomprehensible and powerful love of God, the saving love of God, in a way that doesn't feel the need to kind of Carve out a little territory for man in there, not let God have it all. So, so yes, we not only embrace the mystery, but, but seek to protect those mysteries from being trampled on. It's just that we also don't like to take things that the Bible teaches clearly and, and say those are mysteries too, and we mustn't talk about them. You know, when the Apostle Paul is writing, the Epistle to the Romans, and he gets to chapter 9, a lot of well-meaning people would say, Paul, lay down your pen. These are mysteries. You don't need to go there. But he goes there, and he teaches these things, and it's, it's, it's more important for us to ask why and what the value of these doctrines is than to try to hide them behind a veil. And so in that sense, I think uh, it was not until I found myself in the Reformed tradition that I truly began to appreciate the the huge, vast cathedral of mystery without any sense of anxiety, you know, uh, at the unknown, because all of the mystery emanated from the God who was in control of all things and whose love drives all things.
1: Yeah, and to bring it back full circle, talking about Christ as the measure of all things, and the God who is love, who is grace, uh, is the God of Jesus Christ. The mystery is revealed in Christ, always coming back to him and, and seeing in Christ the immeasurable riches of God's grace.
0: Thank you, Cameron, and thank you to everyone who's listening to us. That's all the time we have this week for the commentary. Hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, you can find out more about Grace Presbyterian Church by visiting us online at org.